Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, COVID-19 cases are surging right the way across the country. A reminder to keep exercising the protocol. We've heard of light that many are not believing in science. Not the case for Canadians. The COVID-19 pandemic has actually increased their trust of science. And a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald has been defaced in Hamilton. What do we do with these statues and namesake buildings as we move forward in this discussion? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son, spreading the joy with my voice instead of a big sloppy kiss. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. What a beauty day. Oh, my goodness. It is absolutely beautiful out. Uh, get out and uh, enjoy. Just even, even to stick your head out the door and see what's going on. Uh, it is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. There's lots of ways to do that. Via the website, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. Facebook and Twitter as well. Join the conversation there. You'll find the podcast edition of the commentary there. Uh, light in the COVID tunnel. There is light at the COVID in the COVID tunnel. We're not at the end of it yet, uh, but there is light there, uh, obviously, with uh, um, announcements from uh, Pfizer yesterday that... Uh, their uh, their vaccine that they're working on that they're developing still going through clinical trials and all of that but proving to be 90 percent effective which is great news all right uh that being said let's bring in dr ahmad khalid medical doctor and health policy experts uh as we've said ontario numbers are going up uh, almost 1400 today we're at uh, 1388 new cases uh, but as i mentioned boy this is something that's certainly going on uh, in various parts of the country. Ahmad Khalid is with us now. Ahmad, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the details and, and where we are right now today, uh, why are some places that were doing well at the beginning of this during the first wave of the pandemic uh, now seem to be faltering? Places out west like B.C. and Alberta and now Manitoba going into a, uh, a heightened uh, level of restriction tomorrow. Uh, those places seem to get through the first wave relatively uh, clean compared to Ontario and Quebec. Why, why are they suffering now, do you think? Well, it's very difficult to actually have an exact answer towards that question. But, you know, we speculated two reasons are really leading to higher rises of cases across the country. Number one being that we, as we expected, that the winter season coming up close and now with the colder temperatures that the virus will spread easier uh, because of the cold temperatures, but also primarily that people are not taking the virus or the pandemic as serious as it did for, during the first outbreak. And, and that's not to put blame on people. It's just the nature of us when we live with a crisis over a long time. And now COVID-19 is considered a protracted crisis, something that we've been living with for quite some time, that we're going to see this exponential increase in the numbers over time. But that doesn't mean that we can't still get ahead of it, Scott. I think that the message here is very uh, clear, which is that Given the escalating numbers of COVID-19 cases and the rise in the number of hospitalization, which we're starting to witness now, that's really alarming. The last thing we want is to get to a point where our health systems 
are overburdened. We don't want to get to that stage. So we should be looking at those increasing rise in numbers and, and think to ourselves, what can we do at an individual level to really help our health systems and our healthcare workers in order not to get there? And part of that is let's go back to the basics. So, uh, you know, clean our hands as frequently as possible, uh, use hand sanitizer, avoid large crowds, only go outside unless you're, it's needed and necessary. I know it's uncomfortable and I know it's a challenging time for all of us, but I believe that the consequences of, that we might, we might burden ourselves with if we don't comply to these interventions now can actually be severe. We could be looking at what Manitoba is considering now, which is back to a red level, and that's something that none of us really want. How much of this has to do with colder temperatures? For example, here in Ontario, we've been blessed for the last few weeks with with incredible weather uh, and in delaying, I guess, the inevitable. However, in parts of the West, boy, they're getting snow today. So uh, once Ontario gets into the colder uh, 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 weeks, I guess, even just, you know, really a couple of weeks from now, will we see a dramatic shift in these numbers because of that? Well, what the evidence shows us is that with cold and temperatures, I mean, we said this early on that COVID-19 doesn't care about weather, and it's, it's still true. We know that COVID-19 will still occur in rapid numbers, whether in hot or cold temperatures. But what we mean about cold temperatures making it more susceptible to increasing the numbers is that by virtue of being cold outside, we're more likely to sort of, you know, spend more time indoors. Uh, and, and then some people find that to be very, very difficult. And so they might not be uh, either willing to gather in large groups indoors. And that's the issue here, Scott. So the issue is not about really necessarily the colder temperatures in terms of the actual Celsius of the temperatures, but rather right. about our human behavior and how we interact with the virus. Now we're so, not, no longer interacting outside in outdoor places where there's better ventilation. We're forced to hang out inside. And by hanging out inside with large crowds, we're more susceptible to increasing the number. So obviously, as we go inside, the numbers go up. Are you anticipating in the next month, as it's been late for us to go inside, that that may happen? So the numbers we may see a month from now could be startling as well. Not if we, you know, sort of hang out with our own bubbles indoors. So I think that's the key message here. So if you stick to, you know, because it's colder temperatures outside and you're more likely to stay at home, please make sure that you're only sort of surrounding yourself, people within your own social bubbles that we introduced way early on. The idea here is that don't be having the parties you're having outside in parks and your patios mm. indoors. There is less ventilation. This is the problem we had with the bubbles that some restaurants were creating in their patios, is that there's no adequate ventilation when you're in a very enclosed space. So in case one of the people who are in that gathering has COVID-19, it's very easy to spread it in that case. Is, is it almost as if a winter message is needed here, doctor, where all of a sudden, okay, uh, different scenario now, uh, wipe the slate clean, let's start again, and this is what we need to do as we head into the, the, the colder temperatures? I think it's also more about reinforcing the earlier messages, which is very common. We see this with crises a lot. That there's a need to sort of reiterate or reinforce some of the earlier messages about the reason behind those interventions. Because when people understand why we're suggesting this or why public health experts are putting forward this idea that let's go back to basics, let's go and make sure that we're sticking to this intervention, is this idea that after a long time in a protracted crisis, we lose focus on what the key messages are. And that's very normal. Uh, and that's the, our job is to really help sort of re-raise the awareness around that. Are you hopeful, and you know, I was thinking this the other day too, and we spoke about this last week, I think, where uh, you know, if, if, if the public had a goal, had a plan, had a, had a vision in sight, and, and to keep mindful of the fact that a vaccine will be available soon, uh, and by that I mean six months or so within that, uh, if we're lucky, 
Um, does that give people hope? Does that give them reason to, you know, we can hunker down this winter and then, then we're good to go? Absolutely. I think that the early uh, studies from Pfizer, which again, will require further investigation because they haven't gone through peer review, which is a very rigorous way to make sure that the results are valid and that we can trust them. Uh, but there's still hopeful news that a vaccine is on the way. Governments, especially our government in Canada, is working actively to figure out different options to address this. And the reality, Scott, is that we haven't really been faced with something at this scale ever before. So, you know, we go back to basics, which is that we're learning on the job. And it's unfortunate we should we should not be doing this. But I think that we, we also the way we're handling COVID-19 now than we did when the first outbreak first happened is quite different. You know, when it first happened back in February, we were going to lockdown measures. There was a, a state of hysteria and chaos. That's not the case right now. We're trying to function with the best available evidence that we have, but also understanding the human needs and that people are hungry and, and our desire to go back to normal life. And how can we adapt our systems to accommodate for that? I've said it on your show before, and I'll say it again. It's no longer about living in the, in the current moment till COVID-19 is gone, but it's rather about understanding and accepting the, the, the harsh reality, which is that COVID-19 is not going anywhere and that we're going to live with this virus. And how can we adapt our life around it? Uh, we talked earlier in the week uh, in regard to the new system uh, and and uh, the new levels, the color-coded uh, levels that are a little bit more specific, uh, going from three categories, I guess, to five and such. As that's all being implemented, we're seeing the cases rise in Ontario. Peel has issues, uh, the Toronto mayor talking about perhaps uh, uh, just with, within Toronto itself, uh, adding additional measures to all of this. Your thoughts on where we are with rising cases as we try Try to implement this new system. I think we're going to see more tar- targeted interventions, and what I mean by that is a surge in the number of testing in specific hotspots throughout the province. So Toronto, for us, for example, has been indicated or shown over day over day that it's actually one of the major hotspots in the province. So we're going to. I expect that the government will be surging capacity. If not, I, I believe that they have already been doing steps towards that, and increasing testing in, in, in those hotspots but also into looking into where can we target it, where can we target the hotspot testing. So what I mean by that is that is there specific neighborhoods in Toronto that we've seen higher numbers? And this is why data becomes so important, especially as we move forward in this protracted crisis into understanding where are hotspots and how can we put interventions specifically tailored for those hotspots. We certainly know the discussion that's been had through the course of this uh, pandemic regarding restaurants and, and gyms and such. Uh, and, and we're still hearing with these numbers going up that it's largely coming from social gatherings. So is it, is it, is it, is it accurate to target gyms and restaurants when it appears it's just <laughs> lacked protocol in, in, in certain gatherings and such? Is, is that accurate? Well, I think it's when you look at our social demographic and how we interact, we mostly interact in large, large gatherings, especially in colder temperatures, in restaurants and gyms. I can't really think, I mean, casinos is another one, but for the most part, the, the average Canadian attends restaurants or goes to a gym facility-like structure. There's no other really big structures that allow for that. I mean, you could argue that malls should fall into that category, that if we're mm-hmm. going to close gyms and, uh, and, and restaurants, we should also be closing shopping malls that gather people. But we haven't really seen massive gatherings in shopping malls. For some reason, especially in the downtown core of Toronto, people seem to be you know, you've, if you talk to local businesses at Eaton Center, for example, they'll tell you they're suffering big time. People are just not becoming, going to the mall like they used to. So what is it about malls versus restaurants versus gyms? Uh, and I think part of that is the reason why we're seeing that is that people are considering their mental health status. So gyms uh, afford people 
a, a space for them to exert some energy to really help get their mental health status at the time. So I think that's going to be closely examined over the next coming days. And if the numbers continue to rise, Scott, I won't be surprised if we're actually looking at much stricter regulations and control measures within gyms. But I think the key message here is that we have to emphasize that people are still dying from COVID-19 just because I have not been affected by it or a family or a loved Mm. one. This virus is serious and it has killed millions of people so far globally. But even in Canada, it has had a huge impact on lives and lives are at stake here. So when we're thinking about this intervention being harsh and unreal and that we can't live with them anymore, we just have to go back to that basic point is that human life is at stake. And so that's what's really important to keep sight of. And we have done this before. Something to remember. Uh, I know you're a doctor and a health policy expert and not a politician, but I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on what is transpiring in the United States. Obviously, uh, uh, technically, the election still up in the air, but we certainly know who uh, the presumptive winner is. Uh, and, uh, and Vice President-elect Biden has already started a uh, coronavirus task force and, and working on on this issue. So he hits the ground running um, with a, a different voice in the White House. We've talked a lot about mixed messaging and getting the message across from your perspective, from a medical perspective. Uh, what's what's the how are you viewing this election as far as just the message itself? Well, from a health policy perspective, what happens in our neighboring country impacts us here in Canada. And we always look into the U.S. for sort of guidance on how they're trying to address key issues. However, I don't think that that's the case for COVID-19. If anything, actually, we're now the leaders in how to address COVID-19 pandemic. People are looking at Canada. I mean, we looked, you bring up the U.S. elections, and I remember distinctively Barack Obama gave a very telling speech right up to the election time where he was talking about Canada. And it was a proud moment mm. for all of us. He was saying, Look at our neighboring country and how they've been able to address COVID-19. Why are we not doing the same? And so the hope here is that President-elect Joe Biden would be looking at Canada for learning lessons of how to address COVID-19 within our society, but also our Canadian demographic and our Canadian citizens and people who live in Canada and how we've been very good at, for the most part, sticking to the public health experts' opinions, listening to our leaders on how to get ahead of this COVID-19 pandemic. What about science itself? It seems we've questioned this of late. Uh, will that will this change opinion? Well, science has always been questioned regardless. And we know from evidence that depending on what political party you belong to, that your interpretation of the evidence or science changes. That's that's based on research that's been already published. So uh, I think that there's going to be a challenging, uh, the people are going to challenge the science behind vaccines when it does become available. But even we saw it, people challenge the, the, the effectiveness of face masks. And it took a massive campaign across the world to really emphasize why face masks are important because the evidence was being generated or, or helping to validate some of those findings. So I think that the issue about trusting the science will continue no matter where you live in the world. But I think for the most part, Canadians seem to trust the science more than other countries. Dr. Ahmad Khalidi has been with us, medical doctor and health policy expert, talking about the latest developments in COVID-19. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. Uh, here's something that's odd, too, that has come out of this. And um, many were questioning going into the pandemic and just in general, especially uh, with the current president of the United States south of the border. People were questioning science. People, you know, I don't know about this. Uh, I don't know. And, you know, as uh, Dr. Ahmad Khalid said, you know, quest- science is always supposed to be questioned. That's how we move forward. That's how we solve issues. 
Um, but it seemed that uh, as time moves on, we trust our our institutions less, perhaps not so much in this country, but we've certainly seen evidence of it uh, south of the border. But a new survey says that the pandemic may have boosted Canadians' uh, confidence and trust in science and the people who, of course, do the job. To talk more about all of this, uh, Brett McCollum is with us, PhD, the Canadian Journal for Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, Professor of Chemistry, Mount Royal University, and is with us now. Uh, Brett, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, nice to meet you, Scott. So obviously, you know, it's tough to compare us to those south of the border, but it seems up here the pandemic has increased our uh, trust in science. How do you explain that? Well, I, I think it really comes down to the role that science is playing in helping us see an end to the pandemic. You know, government officials at the municipal, the provincial, the federal level, they're using scientific evidence to inform public health advisories. We as individual scientists, uh, as individual citizens, each of us have a role to play in helping reduce spread of the virus, but we recognize that even when you combine the actions of citizens and government, we're only really helping reduce spread of the virus. Alone, that's not gonna end the pandemic, and that's why we need a vaccine. And so I think that the 3M State of Science Index is showing us that Canadians understand that significant role that science is going to play in helping to solve this pandemic. Will this change uh, the attitude of anti-vaxxers? I mean, many would say uh, for, uh, before COVID-19, you know, we don't need this, we don't need that. Yet if you ask generations who are older and remember pandemics, remember uh, measles outbreaks, polio and what have you, uh, although those pretty much uh, uh, eliminated in our generation, people perhaps don't see the need. Well, that's done. I don't need that. Whereas COVID-19, here it is. It's in our faces. It's the first crisis of this privileged generation. Does that that change attitude? I, I think that becomes a very personal choice um, that people have to uh, people have to be informed about the value of science and, and choose to be informed in order to understand the value that vaccines can play in our in our society. Do I you think, think? Sorry, go ahead. Go no, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say one of the one of the the ideas is um, it's around mindset, a fixed or a growth mindset, and and so when you talk about the value of vaccines, um, people can, can recognize the, the value that it plays in terms of helping to control disease within our community. Um, one of the challenges is uh, being familiar with the science. People who understand the value that science has to play in their lives are more likely to be supportive of science. Um, yet at the same time, we see in the survey that 43% of Canadians have been told that they weren't smart enough to pursue science in school. And that's why they chose not to take that path. Mm. Um, it, it's fascinating. Some of the research around this has shown us that uh, parents play a huge role in determining whether or not their children see themselves as capable in math and science. That if, if as a parent, you say to your kid, um, I'm not a math person, so you're not a math person, as though somehow it's genetically passed on. Yeah. Um, your, your kid is going to walk away from science, and then that can impact the way that they view science in their lives. Whereas if we recognize, rather than uh, approaching it with a fixed mindset, we say, you know what, science is challenging. Math is hard, but if you persevere, if you continue uh, practicing 
you can be successful. That's how we get more people into science so that we can, as a society, solve these global issues that this isn't going to be the last one that we face um, as, as a planet, as, as a, a community of, of people. We need experts who can tackle these big issues. Boy, do you ever bring up a valid point and having kids that are in school right now and even going through this as a kid myself, I was not one of those kids that were good in math and good in science, but I always found it fascinating. Um, do we position this like it's only for the brainiacs? It's only for the elites that can handle it. And therefore, that that attitude, that uh, perception just continues right through adulthood. I didn't get it as a kid. I didn't get it as a kid. I'm not going to get it now. Well, I, I had a student who was in my organic chemistry class two years ago, um, and she said that she had previously taken organic chemistry with the plan to become a physician, and she failed the course, and she said to herself, that's it, this isn't my path in life. I, you know, I've had a vision, and I have to walk away from it. Something happened in her personal life, and 10 years later, now as, you know, an, uh, you know in late 20s, she came back to university and said, I want to give it a second chance. I, I, I want to pursue that path in life. And our first day in class, I do an exercise where we do what's called the failure bow, where you, you do an exercise in front of a group of people. It's intended so that you will make a mistake and you will get embarrassed. And then you have to let that uh, physiological response go by taking a bow and acknowledging you made an error. And she wrote to me afterward and she said she now sees that's being her challenge is being able to recognize that she can be successful in science. She can become a scientist, but it's, it's recognizing that we will make mistakes along the way as we learn. And I see the same thing true in terms of development of a vaccine that we're going to be developing vaccines and some of them aren't going to make it the whole way through that development process. We're going to find that some of our attempts at developing the vaccine didn't work, but that doesn't mean that science doesn't work. That just means we have to keep pursuing um, that solution until we attain it. Uh, The public often blamed for not following the science, for following perhaps pop media or whatever is is distracting at the time, uh, as opposed to following the science. Should science be doing more to be more inclusive? Is science partially responsible for what has happened by not opening the doors? I think it's it's a bit of both in that as, as experts in the field, we do have an obligation to invite people in, to engage with the public, and to um, communicate our results not not only to each other, to industry and government, but also to citizens so that they can see the value of our work. And I think a lot of us are working really hard to do that, to ensure that science that is supported um, by by government grants is communicated so that citizens understand the value that they're they're receiving um, from public support. At the same time, though, I, I do think that individuals have a responsibility to engage with that uh, with that information, um, because sometimes we're more likely to accept an opinion that we hear from a friend, a family member, or a neighbor, rather than challenge that perspective. And that's one of the good news things that I did see within uh, the survey 
uh, is that Threams found that 50% of Canadians are now more willing to advocate for science compared to half that number, 25%, just a year ago. I can't let you go, uh, Brett, without asking you your thoughts about what has transpired with uh, the U.S. presidential election south of the border. <laughs> I know you're a, I know you're a scientist. You're not. You're not a. Uh, uh, you're certainly not a politician, um, but uh, that being said, there's been much said around the mixed messaging that has come out of the United States. Uh, uh, President-elect Biden has already started a uh, COVID-19 task force and seems to be moving forward on this. Just from a messaging standpoint, uh, does it reassure you the direction they appear to be going at this point? I think it's good news not just for Americans, but for Canadians, too, that we now have a partner to the South who's interested in working with its neighbors in in having a, a, a social, a public health plan to deal with spread of the virus. Well said. Uh, Brett McCollum has been with us, a PhD, 3M National Teaching Fellow, uh, Mount Royal University Professor in Chemistry. Thank you so much for the time, Brett. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Uh, all right, uh, let's move on. Uh, according to a new poll, and a new Leger poll, that Canadians, uh, the majority of them, uh, two-thirds, would not be unhappy if they were uh, told to abide by a curfew as this pandemic or if this pandemic was to get more serious. To talk more about all of this, Christian Bork is with us, Executive Vice President and Partner at Leger, and with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, doing great. I, uh, I hope the same for you. Yeah, so far so good. You know, it's interesting. We were just talking to our last guest, uh, and, and we were talking about how Canadians are becoming more interested and more trusting in science that COVID has somehow drawn their attention towards this. Do you think that's partially what you're speaking of here with people being aware of what's going on? And if it gets tough, uh, we'll, we'll hunker down. Yeah, and, and we've seen throughout the crisis, Canadians largely have sort of decided to, to sort of basically support what their government uh, and governments are doing during the pandemic. Very early on, when the first uh, lockdown happened in the, in March and April, Canadians, by and large, were supportive. Uh, and again, when we said, uh, at some point, we asked, should um, our policemen and women uh, able to, to, to give fines if people are not basically wearing the mask or respecting social distancing, they said, yes, we should enforce this. And uh, now we get to this, this issue now that some provincial uh, governments are considering the idea of a curfew in Canada. Um, and again, two-thirds of Canadians are saying, well, if this is what we need to do, we'll do it. Do you think, uh, Christian, this is a case of it's always uh, a good idea as long as it doesn't involve me, <laughs> as long as it doesn't involve ourselves? Well, it's good for those guys over there because they got a problem, but for me, we're good. Yeah, and, and I think people are hearing about these curfews being sort of, uh, they happen in Australia, they're happening in, in different countries in Europe. Um, and of course, in Canada, it would vary depending on the region and the province, because, for example, in the province of Quebec, where they've closed rest almost all restaurants um, and, and bars, there's nothing to stay up for. Uh, so the curfew might not be that bad of an idea. There's nothing to do mm. anymore. Um, in other regions, though, a lot of places are still open, uh, whether it's restaurants or, or, or some pubs or bars. Um, and the idea of a curfew is, I guess, relatively popular. 
Uh, how do you explain then, Christian, that because obviously we've been through this before, this is a second wave, uh, we, we saw what happened the first time and, and everybody masked up and, 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 and practiced the protocol and we pushed this thing back down. Now, of course, uh, after coming out of summer, people have gotten a little bit lax and, and, and many experts have said that's the reason we're seeing the increase. That and, of course, the, the movement of people indoors during uh, the winter months. So d- how come people are, yeah, well, we're into a curfew if it's needed, but seem to be dropping the guard when it comes to the basic uh, protocol of washing the hands, safe distancing, and masking up? Yeah, well, recently we measured uh, and we asked people, have you relaxed any of the following? Uh, and about four out of ten Canadians said, yeah, I, I'm not doing it as much as I used to when this all started. Uh, so we, we're we're getting a little bit of the, the, the a little bit of both. And now that we're heading into the long month of winter, um, I think the impacts on, on Canadians' mental health um, and, and just this, this idea of, of feeling good about uh, about the whole thing, um, I think will be an issue um, in Canada. The other thing, though, is, is when we compare our data uh, to the data that we measure in the States, uh, over there, there's, there's a much larger contingent of Americans who distrust the state and basically will not allow the state to tell them what to do. Uh, I mean, it's part of their culture. Uh, and it's something we're not seeing as much here. When we actually asked about the anti-mask demonstrations, less than 1 in 10 Canadians were supportive of that movement. Uh, almost 9 in 10 were more supportive of, of what science and their governments have been saying. Uh, I've been asking all the guests this this week, Christian, so I'll ask you, too, now that uh, it appears, obviously, there's going to be a presidential change in the United States, uh, 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 President-elect Biden already starting a COVID-19 task force to get up and running uh, before he, uh, he he's even inaugurated. How will that change the messaging? Uh, because every, you know, obviously there was a lot of mixed messaging, especially coming out of the states. Uh, how do you think that's going to change things now that we've got a different uh, or there will be a different person uh, in charge with a different attitude on this? Well, it, it, it should help. Uh, you think that in, in matters like these, uh, contradictory messaging is probably the worst thing that can happen. Um, if different authorities are speaking a different language, then you don't know who to trust anymore. Now, probably uh, you know, that the health officials in the U.S. and their, their national government will be saying the same thing and, and singing the same tune. That should probably help in, in making more Americans uh, wanting to follow safety measures. However, again, I mean, a lot of people in the U.S., traditionally, they, they buy guns to protect themselves from the state. <laughs> and yeah, uh, so good point. my guess is that when government is asking them to wear a mask, well, you find a lot more opposition down there than you would see up here. I guess no real surprise there. Christian Borg has been with us, executive vice president and partner at Leger, a new Leger poll, saying Canadians, uh, if we have to, if it gets serious, we don't mind hunkering down and uh, wouldn't be upset if a curfew was imposed. Christian, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. All right. My pleasure. Same to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A poll from Historica Canada says that fewer Canadians will attend Remembrance Day ceremonies for obvious reasons. Uh, you've just heard that uh, the, the Cenotaph uh, uh, celebration or memorial that is normally happens on Remembrance Day. Bill Kelly, of course, broadcasting. Uh, no public gathering this year. Uh, and as a result, fewer poppies uh, seem to be being purchased uh, as a result of COVID-19. Let's bring in Anthony Wilson-Smith from Historica Canada and with us now anthony thank you for the time i hope you're doing well 
My pleasure, Scott. Good to be with you. So I guess it's obvious that due to the pandemic, there's going to be less uh, social gatherings and, and memorials as such as there have been in the past. We certainly know what that's like here in Hamilton at the Cenotaph. But, you know, it's disturbing as well as people don't seem to be getting out and purchasing poppies. What is your position on all of this and, and where we are for Remembrance Day? Well, I mean, look, you know, first of all, in terms of, I absolutely agree, Scott, in terms of fewer people taking part yeah there's fewer opportunities to take part and you know the personal aspect of of like a live meeting where you get to see veterans you get to go up after you get to thank them and other times shake their hand i mean without that there's no question it's a big loss um and you know and poppy's the legion's done a lot of smart stuff this year including by the way you know building the capability to pay with your atm card because a lot of people don't carry cash anymore but when you're not out there, when there's not as many people on the streets, and I know for me, I've had to actually go looking before I finally found one. Where you know, whereas normally you've got a veteran seems on almost every corner in a great way. So that's all understandable. Uh, some of the other stuff you know we see in the background is a bit more troubling. The lack of knowledge that seems to be building, you know, seems to be coming about uh, Canadian contributions in past wars and otherwise. Yeah, that's another point uh, that, that's very valid, Anthony. In 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 that the the advantage of having this every year is it reinforces those lessons, it reinforces uh, those memories as we move forward. Are you worried that with the loss of a year of these uh, memorials, that we may lose interest come next year, or is the opposite perhaps that we'll see a, sur- a resurgence next year? Well, I think, you know, a couple things. One, of course, Scott, is, you know, I think we feel particular, uh, particularly strong emotionally towards World War II veterans. They're now in their mid-90s. There are fewer of them around, you know, every year, of course. We just lose more and more, and we can see a day when, unfortunately, there won't be any otherwise. So every opportunity lost to say thank you to hear their engagement, you know, is um, is a big loss. We don't know, of course, where we'll be a year from now. I mean, hopefully we'll all we'll be back at this again, but... Uh, it's certainly an opportunity missed, and again, understandably, you know. I mean, when you you know when you have to seek something, when you can't go to that cenotaph, when you can't hear the stories from from you know grandparents of someone you know or otherwise, it just doesn't feel the same. So, is this completely to blame on the pandemic uh, that fewer will purchase a poppy, perhaps because it's just not top of mind or they're not out? Same thing with Remembrance Day. I mean, is, is this about a, a general loss of interest or just how we deal with something during a pandemic? I, I think there's a couple of things. I, I think what's disturbing to me is uh, you know that it's very clear that in, in some schools across Canada, based on these results. There's not a lot of teaching about uh, about Canada, about Canadian history in general, and about Canada's role in the wars and you know heroism and sense of sacrifice overall. So that's lost. Um, you know, we need to see more efforts there. And the other thing again is you know you worry about losing that personal touch because when you have veterans who have taken part in a conflict, you can say to them, "What was it like? How you know how scared were you? How did it feel that day?" When you can ask all those questions about. What's it like on the ground? That means way more than learning a bunch of dates and geographical locations and otherwise, you know. So we're not, you know, we're not getting that. So, yeah, you know, for years we've seen an increase in participation. We're not seeing that now. Uh, we had a, a news story last week of a, a, a food chain uh, that uh, said that their members yeah. could their members could not wear poppies as part of their uh, store u- uniform. They've since reversed uh, that decision. Um, you know, and, and I think the wording they used was, uh, we don't want symbols or, or, or uh, symbols of causes. Is this a cause? I mean, I kind of thought it was odd to put that 
put remembrance day in the same category as another cause yeah, yeah it drives me absolutely crazy and obviously it's a terrible terrible decision i mean just um you know, I mean, whoever was, you know, whoever whoever made it, frankly, shouldn't probably be at their desks or their virtual desks anymore doing that job because it was just so ill found. Remembrance Day, you can you can wear a poppy with you know with uh, you know respect and all the right emotions on Remembrance Day, whether it's to say you're actively supporting the military or even if you're a pacifist. I mean, the chance to hear about the horrors of war, the losses that have taken place, to talk to veterans who have taken part, to hear about the, the, the all of that is the best argument in favor of never wanting war again. I mean, on that, everybody should be able to agree. That's not a political cause. What about, let's talk about that a bit more. Uh, there has been some blowback, even before COVID-19, that, you know, you shouldn't wear them, or you're, you're even making reference to the kids not being taught about them in school, that it is a symbol of war. Uh, again, uh, I'm you know, a guy in my 50s. I've always viewed this as a memorial, as something to pay tribute, not a symbol as in a flag or, or, or even another cause for that matter. I don't even want to mention another cause to tie anything together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but do you have to battle that where some people think that if you're glorifying the poppy, you're glorifying war? Yeah, I mean, that's come up, and, you know, the, the poppy is retied to the Legion. I know they've had to deal with that. We, we usually arrange about 2,000 visits by veterans to schools every year for those people to talk about their experiences, either current military or otherwise. And, and actually, again, this year we've had about, uh, we've arranged about 1,000 virtual visits. Yeah, and our position strictly would be, if you want to talk about how awful war is, talk to somebody who's been in one. If you want to talk mm. to somebody who never wants to see war again, talk to a veteran. You know, those are the people who really know that. So, so you know... It, that's always the answer when this question comes up, but you're right, it comes up. How does Historica Canada deal with the fact that we are in a pandemic and the reality is that uh, people aren't participating in a lot of things now? Well, we've just, you know, we're very digital, uh, Scott, and what we do. So, uh, you know, we've already had uh, put out a minute in the middle of the pandemic commemorating the Canadian rule and liberation of the Netherlands in World War II. That was seen 4.4 million times online. We just had one out recently on Elsie McGill, who was called the Queen of the Hurricanes, ran all the production during World War II of Hawker Hurricanes for the RCAF. That was seen about 5.6 million times in the first month. And then I, you know, I was just saying with our memory project, with these visits by veterans, for example, the other day we had uh, a current service person who's on duty with NATO right now in northern Italy, and he did a Zoom session with a class in Ontario. So we've got about you know close to uh, nine hundred wow. between nine hundred and a thousand of those. That's a great idea and a, and a great way to get it into the schools. Uh, website we can go to Anthony if people are out there and want to find out more between uh, today and tomorrow. Two two easy ones: just Google either Historica Canada or uh, or the Memory Project, which we run, and that's that's particularly got all that stuff. Anthony Wilson-Smith has been with us from Historica Canada trying to keep uh, Remembrance Day and poppies uh, in the forefront during a COVID-19 pandemic. Anthony, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you too, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you may know, Sir John A. McDonald's statue, the statue uh, downtown Hamilton defaced, covered in red paint. Uh, for John, uh, we're, we're just assuming Johnny McDonald's uh, uh, involvement and uh, actually starting residential schools way back when. How has he become the scapegoat for the attitude of that time? Should we be focusing on others 
as well. Let's bring in Randy Boswell, a journalism professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, former national news reporter specializing in Canadian history and politics, and actually traveled to Scotland uh, back in 2015 to speak at a conference commemorating the 20th anniversary of John A., and trying to get the government to form some sort of committee or national uh, task force to somehow uh, debate this and move forward. Let's bring in Randy Boswell now. Randy, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. All's good here in Ottawa. So how do we move this discussion beyond uh, painting up statues and such? Is it a case that it's time to take these all down and, and move them into a museum? Uh, what needs to happen here to move this discussion forward? Well, I think a lot of things could be happening simultaneously on this kind of issue. But I do think that the underlying approach should be you know, a consultative approach, a proactive approach. It, it doesn't really make sense for... Um, you know, communities across the country to have to keep reacting to acts of vandalism that are nevertheless, you know, grounded in, uh, you know, deep-seated concerns about historical wrongs. So, um, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm someone who has over the years admired Sir John A. Macdonald, as, as I'm sure many Canadians have, because he, he played a, a crucial role in bridging the French-English divide in helping to create Canada. He made sure that, um, you know, we didn't simply go from being a colony of, uh, of Britain to a colony of the United States. Um, so he, he played a significant role in a positive sense for Canadian history. Um, you know, but he also has um, dark sides. And um, the difficulty with statues is that they're very blunt instruments when it comes to historical storytelling. You're really only going to get one feeling uh, from a gigantic statue of someone uh, when, in fact, history is much more complex than that. And so in different communities across the country, in different settings and circumstances, there will be different solutions to this kind of problem. It always seemed interesting to me that, uh, and you can certainly understand why John A. McDonald is the target here because of his roles in residential schools and such, but it's as if he has become the scapegoat for this and no one else who was around at the time has, even if it's our own ancestry. Do we hate our own ancestry as much as we are targeting John A. McDonald? Because clearly at the time, Canadians held the same view. So rather than the dark side for John A. Macdonald, isn't it a dark side for all of Canada? Shouldn't we be looking inward as opposed to pointing the finger at him as if he was doing this without the support of the rest of Canada? Well, I, I think, in fact, um, you know, that is part of what's going on, is that there's a, you know, a deep reflection and rethinking of the past, including all kinds of um, you know, 19th century policies and figures. Um, so it, it, it really isn't just McDonald who's been under the spotlight. Let's think of Hector Langevin, for example. His name used to adorn the office of the Prime Minister of Canada directly mm -hmm. across from Parliament buildings. Um, but a few years ago, that was uh, quite abruptly changed under the, the present Trudeau government. Um, to become, you know, the more uh, uh, sort of boring title of the office of the prime minister. Um, but that was in response to the fact that Langevin, too, was implicated as an architect of the residential school system. So, um, so it's, uh, it's certainly that there were, uh, there were many people in the early uh, phases of Canada's development 
um, that we are reconsidering right now. Uh, and an important example, I think, um, in recent months um, has been uh, the figure of Peter Russell, who was a top administrator in Upper Canada in uh, the late 1700s and early 1800s. Um, and uh, his name adorns a, a township here in the Ottawa area, as well as a county and other landmarks, including a major road in the city of Ottawa. Um, and I've written, uh, so it's no surprise to anyone um, uh, wondering where I stand on this, this is a guy who has almost no redeeming features. He was His main claim to fame is that he was an opponent of abolition, uh, and he owned slaves in you know, what became the city of Toronto. Um, this is somebody who, as far as I'm concerned, um, it makes sense for us to revisit why things are named after him, simply because he had a particular position in the government at the time. Um, so I think different circumstances prevail for different individuals, right. and um, it's a debate and a discussion that we should have in a in a proactive sense, rather than responding every time there is some kind of incident, like the one that, unfortunately, Hamilton has just suffered. So uh, where do we draw the line here? Uh, at what point do we focus all of the attention on John A. Macdonald and and not the leaders that followed him, the leaders that were perhaps complicit in, uh, in what he designed and what he set up, including uh, the prime minister's father, Pierre Trudeau? Uh, how, how far do we take this? How far do we go? Well, I, I think probably a, a more constructive way of framing the whole challenge is to consider some of the ways in which we may want to modify um, existing monuments. Um, to me, it makes sense that um, statues of McDonald should be accompanied by plaques uh, yeah. that offer a more contextualized, um, complex explanation of history, because we all know that no one from the past was perfect, just as none of us in the present are. Um, at the same time, though, it, isn't, it shouldn't just be about tearing down statues. We also need to be thinking about building up um, commemorative landmarks uh, for um, other Canadians who we do feel, um, you know, represent in many ways, um, you know, the multicultural reality of, of modern Canada. Um, and there's a really good example right in Hamilton, um, you know, uh, Sir John A. Macdonald High School was closed down along with a few other high schools. And, um, you know, uh, the new high school uh, replacing a number of those was uh, Bernie H Custis High School, mm -hmm. recognizing, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a Hall of Famer uh, from the Ticats, um, you know, a black American born but Canadian adapted um, citizen who, uh, you know, played a great role in um, in school sports in Canada. So, um, you know, th these things have to happen simultaneously. Sure, we can review um, uh, some of the historic landmarks that have been in place for a long time. And at the same time, we can gradually evolve our commemorative landscape so that other, um, uh, you know, other people, uh, other communities in our country can be uh, recognized, um, uh, celebrated. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't think that um, the defenders of Sir John A. Macdonald should get their backs up every time there is some kind of complaint or um, uh, uh, debate over a particular uh, statue. Yes, I think in many communities, for example, Kingston, uh, Ontario, where Sir John A. Macdonald is such an integral part of the history of that community and its institutions, um, 
it, it makes sense for there to be a very thorough debate and discussion about his place. In some cases, like at the law school at Queen's, they recently decided to remove Johnny McDonald's name from that building. Um, but I, I wouldn't be supportive of the idea of um, tearing down a statue of Sir John A. McDonald in Kingston, because he's a very important part of that community's history, despite his dark side. We don't have much time left here, but are we blame, Are we looking for someone to blame, point the finger at, in order to make us feel better moving forward? In other words, we seem to be blaming the leaders of the day, but we're not we're, we're not blaming society of the day, of which we were all a part of, or, an, or our ancestry was. I, I think these debates are about blaming or um, looking critically. I think that's the key point uh, yeah. at, at previous generations. So sure, McDonald is a flashpoint. Um, because he was, in a sense, the most prominent political figure of, his, of, a, of a, you know, the founding era of the country. Uh, so it kind of makes sense that people are going to focus on him. And he did have a very specific role um, in, um, in harming Indigenous Canadians and Chinese Canadians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is, the, that is the kind of the reason why he becomes the scapegoat. Um, but I think we need a broader discussion and I think we need a more orderly process for thinking about how to re- thinking about how to rethink our commemorative landscapes. All right, Randy Boswell has been with us, journalism professor at Carleton University, talking about Sir John A. Macdonald, the statue, and of course names on various institutions across the country. Randy, thanks for the time; much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.